want some music? Stop. We stop the episode. Alright, good job. Yeah. Alright, so we're going to pray together in just a moment. Uh, before we do that, we have a couple of announcements. For one, there is a team leader meeting this afternoon after service. The team leaders will meet in the cafeteria. Um, number two, there is an event upcoming, 2 to 6. Is that next Saturday? Next Saturday, 2 to 6, next Saturday. Okay, and we'll be working on projects at the building. We'll be working on projects in the community. We'll be doing outreach. So we need everybody to show up. Uh, if you have a specific thing, Zayda, I'm hearing you instead of myself. Thank you. If you want to do a specific thing, let us know in advance. Like if there's parts that we need or something like that. But otherwise, we've got a list and we'll have parts uh, to do projects to building, outreach in the community, and let people know what's going on. Okay? And so uh, we're going to put the put the invite out so we get more information over the week, but it's coming Saturday. That's this coming Saturday, 2 to 6. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know that um, in the very beginning, before DNA existed as we understand it, before the stars were in the sky as we know them, and we so, we so often forget to even look, before the earth rotated and the sun rose and set that first time, that your face was upon the waters. You decided in those moments that you wanted something more. You wanted a relationship with mankind. And you orchestrated an incredible series of events that leads up to this very day, September 10th, 2023. And then coming into that play, that series of events, anywhere from, for some of us, two years ago, to some of us, 60 some years ago, we did what we wanted to do rather than what you wanted to do. We walked away from you. We, like sheep, all kind of went astray. And then at some point in time, we've heard about this Jesus. We've heard about this, this man, this flesh man who was also God, who came and died on the cross for sins. And our sins were paid for. Our wanderings could be ended. Our freedom could, for the first time ever, be real. But we recognize, we confess that we've made mistakes along the way. That decision, thank you, didn't honor you. We're grateful that your word says that for those who trust, believe, receive, and abide, that that means we remain with you, that we are forgiven. We can walk the remainder of our days here on this earth serving you and coming to heaven when we die. So these things and so many more things that we cannot lift, we now desire to worship you, recognize you for who you are. Lord, fill this place with your spirit. Heal our sick and our wounded. Be with those who are stuck where they are and can't be here. Lord, help us make that priority decision right now that the rest of it can kind of be set aside and we can honor you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So, before we do any uh, inspirational moments, you may have come prepared to share or whatever. And if you don't have any right to the second, don't just think about the last week, what the Lord may have been saying to you. You might want to share something in a second. Before we do that, I want to remind you of something that's crucial, something that's important. Okay, so hang on one second. We've been doing Bible study. Bible study is where you sit down with a paper and a pen or a set of markers or on your phone or a tablet or whatever. And you read the scripture, you read the Bible, and you write something or denote something or mark something down. If you read your Bible and think about it real hard and ask yourself, like, who is talking? What's going on here? What's this about? What does it say to me? Okay? And you think about it real hard, but you don't write anything down. What's that called? Meditation. Meditation. Very good. So that is the spiritual discipline of meditation. If you look at your Bible and you go over a verse, you're like, oh, I like that verse. That's a good verse. It really seems to speak to me. And you repeat it over and over and over in your head until you can say it without looking at the Bible. What's that called? Memorization. Very good. Memorization. That's easy, right? Okay? <coughs> Study is when you mark something down or you put an anchor in and say, this, I saw something here. There's something here. There's more than that. All right? And I want to give you just one little piece about study today that mustn't be missed. Now, one of the most common ways to study the scripture is to look at it and say, what does it say? Yeah, that is just to observe it or read it and say, what does it say? And then once you've observed or read it, and what does it say, you look at it and say, okay, now what does it mean? What were they talking about? What is this saying to me? All right? And then finally, application, which is to say, now what am I supposed to do about it? If this is what it says and this is what it means, now what do I do? That's the, one of the most common ways to study scripture. It's one of the, I use that in writing my sermons. I'll go verse by verse. And I'll say, what does it say? What does it mean? Now, what should I do about that? What does it say? What does it mean? Now, what should I do about that? And after about 10 verses, I usually come up with three things the Lord's will lay to my heart. I'll pray about those things. And then those will transform and become the points of my sermon. But there's more in there. right? You might do three or four or five for every verse. Every verse might have five points of application that say to you, that say what I should be doing. right? In order to get all of that, if you're going to observe it and ask yourself, what does it say? Or you're going to um, interpret it and ask yourself, what does it mean? This is key. A word that's called context. Does anybody know what I mean when I say context? Are there any linguists in the room? Or you do a whole study on your own. Even in another situation, you know what context means. Can you stab at it? Like, once. Like right. the rest of the story or section around it. Okay, very good, right? So, for example, we teach children when they're reading, they'll run into a word that they don't know and they use context clues, they say, right? So, for example, if I said to you, um, the man's visage was a bright smile, right? Now, over half the people in this room don't know what the word visage means. You wouldn't normally use it. It's not, a, it's not even a common word anymore. It's pretty much lost in the English language, right? It's still there. Right? But it's rare. It's extremely rare. Okay? But based on the context clues, you understand if it's a bright smile, it's probably his what? His appearance or his face, right? It's, it's this, what you see of him. That's his visit. So that's a context clue. Now, when you read in the Bible and you run into a verse, you may have a verse that says, Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came. And my eyes had seen it, and behold, the hack was not told me. You have seen wisdom and prosperity, the report which I heard. Okay? So, there's a woman, 
And she's talking to the king, and she's saying, hey, I came. I wanted to see what I saw, what I could see about what I heard about. Or I heard about some things. I want to come and see. And then I come, and I realize that I didn't even hear half of it. Your wisdom is infinitely greater than that. What's missing? Who, who is this woman? Does anybody know? So that's who it is, right? And so she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, when you understand that she was far off away from King Solomon, she'd never met him. Never been to Israel, right? Never been to Jerusalem. But she heard rumors. She heard people talking about the awesome wisdom of God that was coming through Solomon. And she traveled a long distance to hear that wisdom. And then got there. And what did she say? We read it together. She said that she hadn't heard the half of it. She didn't realize just exactly how much wisdom of God there was coming through Solomon until she got there, right? So she's amazed at how much there is because she heard from afar off the rumblings of that wisdom, but it wasn't until she got close and listened to it for herself that she realized just how important it is, just how much was there, okay? Now, see how the context totally changes? We've got a woman, we don't know who she is, talking to a king, we don't know who he is, about wisdom that he supposedly has, but we don't know that, you know much about the wisdom at all, right? And then she says, well, I came and I found out that I hadn't heard the hack of it. But now when you find out it's Solomon, and by the way, where does Solomon's wisdom come from? A gift from God, right? Solomon was going to rule God's people, and God said to Solomon, you can have whatever you want to rule my people. And he didn't ask for wealth, and he didn't ask for armies, he asked for wisdom, and God said, you've made a good choice. And he gave him wisdom. Now Solomon will make terrible mistakes later in his life, right? Terrible mistakes. Terrible decisions. Not even mistakes. They were wrong decisions. But he was wise and able to speak the wisdom of God, even then, even at that point, God does not forsake him. He still speaks the wisdom of God. All the Proverbs that are written in your Bible, almost all of them anyway, probably all of them, come from Solomon. Right? Awesome. And so what I'm saying to you is this. Knowing the context of what you are reading is important. This is why if somebody gives you a reference, let's say you're reading a Christian book about how to have peace. And it says, in Revelation 21, 19... We need to understand that God is saying, uh, worship God all day long every day and you'll have peace. And you read, it says Revelation 20, 21, and you just keep right on reading, right? Does anybody know what Revelation 21 says about having peace? <coughs> Next to nothing. It's not really about that, right? Now, you can, indirectly, perhaps, but I could throw any reference. I could tell you right now, and you, and you You'd wisely ignore me, but I could tell, tell you that Psalm 110 makes it very clear that you should never wear blue in worship. <laughs> ever. Don't ever wear blue to worship. Right? And unless you know already that that's not true, right? Or you go read Psalm 110, you're not going to know that. So what I would say to you is if you're doing Bible study and someone quotes a verse at you, go look at the context for what they're saying. First, read the verse. I mean, that's just kind of like a book might have a hundred verses in it. And if you're reading that book, read all the verses. Read them all. There are five in a paragraph, read all five of them. At least read all five verses, and then from there you may get a hint. It goes, I've got to read the context, because this it sounds like they're misquoting that. We see that online a lot. Yep. People quoting Bible verses, and they don't even know what the Bible verse says. Exactly. Very much so. Happens a lot. And it, and it, may, it could just be because you're getting the wrong reference. People make that mistake. They'll quote a reference, thinking it says something, but actually they have a different reference. And they're right about what it says, but they're in the wrong place. But even if that's true, you still need to know that. You need to find that out. Right? But more often than not, people, and it's going on in the world right now. Terry and I just had a conversation with four churches. He said, somebody quoted him that Jesus said, 
do not worship me. But there isn't anywhere in the New Testament that Jesus ever said, don't worship me. He never told anybody, don't worship him. He never told anybody to worship him. He didn't require that they do that. But people did it quite regularly, fell down and worshiped him. He never told them, don't do that, ever. And so, but if you go search that on the internet right now, you'll find blogs, you'll find articles, you'll find stuff talking about a place in the Bible where Jesus said, don't worship me. But what they're quoting is from the book of Revelation, where the angel that shows John the Revelation tells him, don't worship me, worship God alone. And that's not people. That's an angel. And should we worship angels? No. Duh. Right? We worship God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And that's it. That's the limit that's of our worship. At all. Don't worship money. Don't worship people. Don't worship angels. Don't worship governments. Don't worship football teams. Don't worship stars. Don't, don't worship, definitely don't worship me. That would be a waste of time. Don't worship anybody. Right? God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Okay, do you have a comment real quick before we... No. Okay. All right. So, so context when you're doing study is important. You could say, "I think I know what it says." You could say, "I think I know what it means." But I'm gonna tell you, if you don't know the context, you don't actually know what it says and what it means. I'll give you one last illustration, classic example. There is a, a fairly large Christian denomination, not one of the largest, fairly large Christian denomination that says that women must wear dresses only to worship God. They have to wear long dresses below the knees to worship God. Okay? Now, they are drawing that out of a verse that says that women should carry themselves discreetly, right? They should be, um, what's the word, um, protective of, they should look distracting, okay? The inward beauty is what's important, not outward beauty, okay? But it's totally taken out of context, isn't it? Even just what I explained to you, totally taken out of context. There's a verse that says that, let me get, here's one I'll give you, because I've seen our people do this, right? Should men pray with a hat on? Anybody? No, we shouldn't pray with a hat on, right? You take your hat off. God is your covering. You don't pray with your hat on. It's disrespectful, right? Truth is, if you come from the military background, some of us in here have that, you realize you don't wear a hat indoors. Right? They say, they train you don't wear a hat indoors. You, take, you come in, you take your cover off, right? Which, which ironically comes from the Bible, even they don't know that, but that's where they got it from. Okay? So you take your hat off. So, when you pray to God, men take their hat off. What about women? Does the Bible say anything about women praying with their hat on? Or off, for that matter? It doesn't say a word. It doesn't say anything about that. So if you see a woman, she's praying with her hat on, and you say, well, the Bible says you take your hat off, that's wrong. And we've done that. We sit around in a group. And you know, a woman has a hat on, a guy has a hat on, and they'll look at the guy, and they'll say, take your hat off. And he does. They'll look at the girl, say, take your hat off, we're going to pray. And she does. But the Bible doesn't say that. Right? And there's anything about that. Men should take their hell because the, your covering is God. Right? But women are not commanded to do that. It's different. So don't take it out of context and then try to use it to prove your point. That's what I'm saying. And don't study it out of context. Don't try to think about what this woman might mean. But if you realize that she traveled a thousand miles to hear a little bit of wisdom from God through Solomon, and she got there and was blown away because she didn't even know the half of it, then you realize it's worth going pretty far to hear any little bit of wisdom from God. When John the Baptist was preaching by the River Jordan, they walked over four miles from Jerusalem. You know that old joke, like when I was a kid and I had to walk to the bus every day, it was, I had to walk up and downhill you know, a mile. It was, on, it was uphill on the way to the bus and up on the hill on the way back from the bus or whatever. It's a joke. And when you go from Jerusalem down to the River Jordan, it is literally up and downhill like this. You go down for a while, then you go up for a while. You go down for a while, and then you go more down than up, because the river's below the city, but you go down and up, and down and up, 
and they traveled four miles to hear a sermon. Because they heard somebody was preaching the wisdom of God. And you know what they found when they got there? They hadn't heard the half of it. The same as that Jesus. Alright. What have you heard this week? How's God been speaking to you? Maybe you studied something? Got somewhere? Um, a while ago, I started a thing on my Bible study, my Bible app, and it's free Bible chronological word. Yep. Um, for one, I didn't realize how out of order the Bible is. Out of chronological yeah. order. Really, <laughs> like I was just scrolling through some of them to see how it panned out. It was really weird how it's like you would see it. Um, but what I read recently is from Exodus, and it made me laugh because I was listening to it on my car on my way to work, and it made me laugh because it was about how. Moses was complaining to God because he can't talk well and all this. Oh, yeah. and complaining to God about yeah. how he's not, he can't go rescue the people from Egypt. And, and it, it dawned on me that, you know, even though all the complaining and the whining, God still provided for him. That's right. At the end, and he gave him Aaron to speak for him. Right. So Moses said, they'll never listen to me because I'm not good at speaking. So he, gave, he had his brother Aaron do it. And it, it was funny to me because I tell my kids that all the time. And they like they complain to me about stuff. And it's like, you realize you spend more time complaining than actually doing what you're supposed to do. And when I got home from work that day, I told my kids to do their chores. And sure enough, they started complaining and giving me all these reasons. And, like that scripture popped in my head again, and I just kind of laughed a little. And I was like, You guys realize that, you know, you complain all the time about stuff, and yet I still provide for you. We still have a house. It's like, How about you just stop complaining and let's get the work done? And it just, it was, to me, it, it just made me laugh. Yeah. Where was Moses during that conversation? Here we go. Give it a Go ahead. In the presence of God. Uh, what do you got? In the presence of God, what do you got? That's right. You're standing in front of a burning bush that wasn't being consumed. That wasn't being burned up. A burning bush. Now think about it for a second. Let's look at the context. You're standing in front of a burning bush that wasn't being burnt up. Telling God that he couldn't do it. He was too weak, making excuses, not a good talker, right? Okay. Ultimately, you said God sent Aaron. Where was Aaron while Moses was having that conversation? When, when it began, he walked in, burning, but oh my goodness, the bush, I'm being burned up. What is this all about? And God said to him, anybody know? Take off your shoes from the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. And did he? He did take off his shoes. So when he took off his shoes, where was Aaron? You know, context of the study. Where was Aaron? Because ultimately, God says, Aaron to speak for Moses, to speak with Moses. So where was Aaron when Moses took off his shoes? According to the scripture. Say it again. Nope, there wasn't a temple at that time. It was a free temple. Say it again. No, this is all happened around the area of Midian, uh, edges, Midian. So I'll answer the question for you, and you can go look at it later, and, and you'll see how I got the context for it, okay? 
excuse me, already on the way. Oh, yeah. God says, have I not already dispatched Aaron? Have I, already not, have I not already sent Aaron? See now, your brother Aaron is already on his way. So while, God would, while he was making excuses to God about he wasn't going to be able to do it, God said, have I not already sent Aaron? He's already on his way here. Do you think God knew Aaron was going to make excuses? I submit to you that Moses was a bush on fire not being concerned God in heaven, let us be on fire and not consume. Let us be studying our Bible. Let us be excited about the context of the verses that we read. We remember that the story is so much richer than a few words on a page. I think about how John said, if everything was written down that could be said about what God has done, what he is doing, about what God is saying, about what Jesus did, that it would fill many tones, more than could fit in a library. And we have it distilled down to your word. And therein is everything a person needs to know and even be in order to walk with you and live forever. If someone offered a potion of vitality that would let a person live infinitely and never die, some people would be really weary of taking that because they would outlive all of their friends. They would outlive all of their family members. They would outlive all of their achievements. But the truth is, it would be a great blessing. We will come to be with you after physical death and spend eternity with you in heaven. And what a context that will be. And we will understand better than ever what we have read, what we have seen, what we have lived. Help us now, Lord, as we study your word, as we try to figure out what it is that we're supposed to be and do that we remember that it's all part of a grand story that points very clearly to the redemption available through Jesus. We ask your blessings upon the tithes and offerings. We ask your blessings upon the remainder of the worship. We ask your blessings upon the reading of your word and of the study, quote-unquote, and of the sermon, quote-unquote, that will yet go on in this place today. You take over every last bit of it because the truth is if we do it, in our own strength, ability, even as smart as some people in this room are, we've got some really smart people here, even as smart as we are, we would screw it up. So Lord, pave the way. Make level rough land. Knock down mountains in this place today. And set us on fire. But don't burn us up. Use us as you see fit. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
the middle of something, get ready to praise the Lord. If you know it ain't over yet, get ready to praise the Lord. If you know where you're going, get ready to praise the Lord. If you know who's with you, get ready to praise the Lord. We're going to praise the Lord.
to the text today, I'd like to ask you to exercise your imagination with me for a moment. I am a storyteller at heart, and I'm going to tell you a brief story. It does not come from the scripture. It is uh, more of an object lesson, and so bear with me. All right, so I want to imagine, I want you to imagine for a moment that you go to high school one day. Some of us are going to like, that's so long ago. I don't know if I can remember. And others are going like, well, that that's tomorrow. So yeah, imagine you go to high school one day and you find out that there is a contest. And the contest is if you take a, an unscrambled, uncooked egg, just a regular white egg and a jumbo egg at that, the biggest they could get. And you're going to build around that egg something that will protect it. You can build a, a frame or a structure. You're allowed to use uh, straws, duct tape, bubble wrap, um, some some clay, that kind of thing. Whatever is provided for you on the table, you can imagine what that is in your head. And then you're going to drop it from the highest part of your high school onto the pavement. 
And if you succeed and the egg does not break, then you pass the assignment. And if you fail and the egg cracks even in the slightest, you fail the assignment. The end result will be you will either succeed or fail in the science class for the entire semester. So I submit to you, you set about building the structure. There's no option. It's not like an optional assignment. You set about building the structure and you build whatever it is that you build. Do you use straws? Do you use duct tape to create little uh, hinges and angles to create a framework around? And then you fill it with foam? And then you wrap it with bubble wrap? and cover the top of it with duct tape and you get an egg that's like this big, right? And surely that will last. And then it comes time and you go outside and you drop it off the building and it falls and it bounces like five, six times because you've wrapped it so well. And then you go down and you open it up and you've got to cut it open with a knife because all that duct tape is hard to get through. You get all through it and you get inside and there is the egg. Is it broken? Is it cracked even in the slightest? How much confidence do you have? What if on the egg is a picture of your face? A cartoon caricature. Is there a crack through your face? What if the egg is representative of your life? And if the egg cracks in the slightest, you fail at the game of life. You retire with nothing in the bank, you um, never have children or never get married, but if that's your goal, some people don't want that, but you, you never own your own place, you, you live as a vagabond wandering around place to place, always struggling with enough to eat, your clothes wear out faster than they should. If the egg cracks at all, everything in your life goes wrong. Now I submit to you, if that's the standard, that if the egg cracks at all, everything in your life goes wrong, then the materials that you want to build around that egg to sustain it, you're going to try really, really hard, right? You're going to build it up really big. You're going to, can I, can I just get some cloth for a parachute? Can I, can we put something on the ground to cushion the initial impact, right? Can I lean way down low and drop it, you know, from just four foot closer to the ground, because that just might make all the difference in the world. You're going to do everything you can to protect it if that egg, even a crack, represents failing at life instead of just a grade. And even a grade is important, right? And so you try pretty hard to not fail science class. You want to do your best with that. But if it's your life, then it's really important. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and go with me. Maybe a little hoot to holler, amen, as we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Amen. This is God's Word. Uh, we talked heavily about this on Tuesday night, just how important it is. One of the things that really stuck with me is that the gospel, the truth that is contained in the scripture, is the thing by which we will be judged. It is the standards that God has set for us. And it's a pretty crazy thing. So we're going to read Deuteronomy 29, verses 1 to 8. Come on in, come on in, have a seat. All right, Deuteronomy 29, verses 1 to 8. Here we go. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. So Horeb is basically Mount Sinai, right? It's where the Ten Commandments were handed down. It's where most of the teaching of what God would teach them that it meant to be like to be uh, an Israelite, to be a follower of God, would come from. But also there was a time that they were at the edge of the land of Moab, now, Bible scholars debate this, and I am not a Bible scholar, okay? So what they, are, what they tend to debate is, is this in addition to what was already given? 
or is it sort of a summary, right? And you can read it, and we'll read it together over the next couple of weeks, and you can make that decision for yourself. I submit to you that it's not really necessary for us to know for sure whether it was in addition or a summary. Nothing that's in here in any way contrasts is what was given at Horeb, right? And nothing that was given at Horeb in any way contrasts what's in here. They, they line up perfectly. It's the will of God revealed in a covenant toward his people. Moab was uh, a land kind of, from the main promised land is kind of like the areas down and to the right, if you're looking at the map. So the southeast kind of region, uh, Edom was down there, Moab was down there, Ammon was all down there, they were all down there. And they had taken over areas of the promised land. And so when they defeat Moab, Areas of the promised land that God had told would go to his people, as we'll see in this text we're about to read, wind up going to the people that God ordained them for. Right. So when those lands are defeated, they get those lands. And that's what it's going to say. So these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the sons of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. So basically saying, look at what God has done to his enemies. You've seen it. Now, if because of where this is set chronologically, there were a lot of people who died in the wandering wilderness that they didn't see it. Right. But there were people who were only 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, and they did see it. And now they're a mature adult getting ready to go into uh, take over these lands. And so uh, Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. In other words, God rocked their world. He defeated, by the way, when you look at those ten plagues in Egypt, every one of those is representative of an Egyptian god. And God basically what he did was he systematically destroyed the gods of the Egyptians. Not symbolically, but in reality destroyed their fictitious belief that uh, the god of the Nile, for example, or, or the god of frogs or whatever. He, he destroyed them all systematically until it came down to the last one who was Pharaoh. And then he killed the next Pharaoh in line, thereby showing that that Pharaoh was not a god like our god. So he did all of that in front of them. Then, of course, they were unfaithful in going to the promised land in the first place. Then many, the whole generation died off in the wilderness, and now as they're going into Moab and going to take it over and lands are going to be handed over, he's talking about what God did to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land. Then verse 3 says, The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders, yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Okay, so listen. I'm going to say to you that if I lived as part of the Israelites and I was in Egypt, right, and I was being told by Moses and Aaron on a regular basis what I need to do, if that was happening, and I was doing what I was supposed to, and I was being sustained while I was watching the Egyptians be wiped out, right, destroyed, their society be picked apart at the seams. When all the water in the Nile, this massive river, by the way, the way that works is the Nile floods every year and it drops all kinds of good, fresh soil when it recedes. And so all along the Nile are all the crops of the Egyptians. It's where they grow everything. You can't grow anything in the desert, right? It's all right there. And so all the Nile rivers turn to blood. All of it. I see that. I'm thinking, okay, that's power. I'm thinking, man, I got to pay attention. God is really something, right? And yet, as they came out, after all that time, the Lord had not given them a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. They were not getting it. We'll come back to that. Verse 5. 
and I have led you 40 years in the wilderness, and your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. And so God sustained them. First of all, he, he ordained that they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they were not faithful in going to the promised land, right? And then now, in the wilderness, God sustained them. He kept their clothes from wearing out. He kept their shoes from wearing out for 40 years. I, I thought about this as I was laying in my bed, praying about it uh, yesterday morning, and I thought, do I have any clothing from when I was 13 years old? And, by the way, I don't, right? Not one thing. Nothing. Nothing. Now you say, well, you're 13, you changed size since then, whatever, you got rid of everything. And that's, that's true. So I thought, do I have any clothing from when I was 30 years old? And I couldn't find anything. I may have something, but I couldn't find anything. Okay? Oh, I just thought of one thing. I have a garment, right? And by the way, it's pretty badly worn, even though I didn't wear it every day in the desert. I'm, it's a suit jacket that Sherry bought me when I was when I was going to uh, preach my first sermon. And when I look at it, I can see it's wearing out, even though I've probably only worn it 50, 60 times. They wore their clothes for 40 years straight in the desert, and their clothes did not wear out, and their sandals did not wear out. You would think, now this is me, right? If I wear the same clothes in the desert for 40 years, and they're not wearing out, and my shoes, I walk in the desert every day for four years. It's not wearing out. I'm thinking, man, that's power. Something's happening there. It's a, it's a sort of a long, enduring power, unlike a river that turns to blood, right? It's, but it's power. And I'm thinking, man, I don't pay attention to that. How do I make that happen? How can I be sure that God always displays that kind of power in my life, that my clothes would not wear out in my sandals? And let's not kid ourselves. They were wandering in the desert because that whole generation was deemed unfaithful, would not go into the promised land when so commanded, and would die in the desert. And their clothes didn't wear out. Verse 6. It says, You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. So he's saying, I didn't sustain you with normal things. There's no vineyards in the desert. right? There's no bakeries in the desert. They were baking stuff out of the manna, but there was no real bread, normal bread, yeast-based uh, Flour, bread, gluten bread, if you will. It, it wasn't there. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. I submit to you, many, many years ago, we were doing a Bible study and the Lord laid on my heart to give up first candy for 40 days. And I thought, man, that's going to be hard. Right? I'm sorry, I got that backwards. First soda for 40 days. There we go. First soda for 40 days. And I gave it up and I, to, to supplement, I ate a lot more candy. That's how I got by. I ate candy instead of drinking soda. And then at the end of it, I thought, well, I have a soda. And God said, well, you don't really need that. And I said, well, no, I don't need it, but I want it. He said, well, no, you actually really don't want it. I submit to you, you, you don't have to make any decisions like I made, but I want you to understand that when God said to me, you don't need to drink soda anymore, and then sustained me without drinking soda for over 20 years, almost 25 years now, right? When that happened, I started to realize God was real. God is doing something in my life. Right? I heard a voice that said, don't do this. I didn't do it, and God made it possible for me to not do what it was I didn't choose to do. Right? I had sins, for example, when I, was a, when I was an unsaved, before I became a Christian, when I was an unsaved human being, I used to lie quite frequently. In fact, I was trained to be a pretty good liar growing up. And for two and a half years after I got saved, I struggled with that. Like I would catch myself, and I would say, oh, that was a lie. Right? And a lot of times I'd try to fix it. And I would say, oh, I'm trying not to lie. Right? And I would beg God, say, God, please. I had a list. I had a list of three sins that I was trying to eliminate from my life. One of them was lying. Right? And I'm saying, God, you know, please help me get past this. You know? 
And two and a half years into my Christian walk, I told a little lie. It wasn't even a big lie. I, just, I told one of the deacons he stood, I wasn't available for something that they wanted to do. I just said, I, I'm sorry, I'm not available that day. I have a prior commitment. But it was a lie. I didn't really have a prior commitment. I could have done it. It was a lie. And the Holy Spirit convicted me so bad. I felt so terrible about what I had done because I've been trying to give up lying. I'm begging God to let me give it up. And then I just told a lie for no reason at all. There was no reason. And I felt so terrible inside. I walked across the room and I said, I got to tell you that what I just told you, that was a lie. And the weight was lifted, and I felt better. And he said, well, why would you do that? And I said, well, I, I, just, I really didn't want to come. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And he said, well, you could have just told me you didn't want to do it. And I said, well, you know, I felt bad because I think I should do it, but I don't really want to do it. And he said, well, if God hasn't told you to do it, then don't do it. I'm like, he didn't get mad at me. He didn't even say, I forgive you like I sinned against him, although I'm sure that was true. He didn't make a big deal out of it at all. And from that moment on, I really never had much trouble. Now, I will catch myself occasionally saying something, and then I'll realize, okay, that's not really true. And so a lot of times, like I'll say, well, there was 101. And I'm, well, it might have been 103 or maybe like 97. And, and I'm hedging my words because I'm being so careful to make sure I don't lie when I'm telling the story because I don't ever want to lie again. But if a, there's a God in heaven that can do that, that can work in a person to make them not do what they don't want to do, that's a God I want to be with, right? That's I want to be part of what he's doing because he wants to make me into something that I want to be. They hadn't eaten bread or drunk wine while they were traveling in the desert at all. And it says that would be the case so that they might know that he is the Lord, their God. God says no wine, no bread. There's no wine, no bread. That's it. Settles it. So if that's the way it is, if he's Lord, he says what to do and that settles it, then we should recognize him as Lord, right? Verse 7 says, when you reach this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them, or the original language says, like, we smote them, we struck them dead, and we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of the Manassites. And so, basically saying these, these powerful individuals, by the way, they say Og, they say that he had a bed um, that was had to have a bed that was over nine feet long so that he could fit in it. Because he was tall. He was a powerful warrior, right? And he's not the only one like that. There were others, and those, those were some of the last really big, powerful warriors that were left on the earth at that time. And they defeated them. They smote them. They struck them dead and gave their lands to the Israelite people. Okay? So that's the text for the day. We'll have a couple more to kind of make sure that we understand, but... Uh, there's three things I want you to see in here. So the first one I want you to see in here is that the covenant of God, the covenant with God's people, stands because God originated it. Not because they're awesome or, or, or smart or strong or trained warriors or whatever. It, doesn't, it continues because God originated it. God does not make bad stuff. He makes good stuff. And God made a covenant with Israel and then he is sustaining them despite, as this one says here, the fact that they weren't getting it. Okay? Back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, we worked through this uh, several months ago now, but in Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 6, you can hear it said very clearly, Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. I mean, let's, let's be realistic. How often do we really get it right? If we don't consult God first, study the Bible, we make our decisions without very intentionally taking into account what God wants. How often would we make the right choice in the right circumstances? You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. 
right? RJ is right now contemplating a career change, not just a job change, but a career change. But the truth is, he doesn't know what's going to happen on the job that he's on in six months or what's going to happen on the new job in six months. If he makes that decision, he could wind up dead or worse, entrapped in something he's going to be part of. He's got to make a decision one way or the other. And only God knows what comes in the future, right? So how often would we stumble? How often would we make the wrong decision if we don't consult God first? This covenant stands... Because God originated it, not because we're super smart or great problem solvers or going to make the right decision or, as the Bible says, we're, because we're righteous. Now notice that when you become a Christian and a follower of God, Jesus Christ's righteousness, this is a doctrine that I'm, I'm not going to get into it today, but it's true, okay, that it is imputed to you. That means it's applied. It's laid over top of your righteousness. So as much as you might be stubborn, get it wrong, do bad things, you have Jesus' righteousness, Okay, we understand that now from the New Testament. They didn't understand that. But what they could see was that God was working in them to sustain them in the wilderness so that he could carry out his original covenant, which he was clearly not carrying out because they were some kind of awesome people who deserved it. He was carrying it out because he was an awesome God. He doesn't make wrong things. He doesn't make mistakes. His character was what the, the covenant was founded on, not theirs. It is not because of your righteousness that the Lord is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stubborn people. And the truth is, we are the same. Now, in knowing the Lord, the power of the Lord and what he is doing, if you'll stop and dwell on it, think about it, you can, be, you can find yourself to be a little less stubborn toward what he's directing you to. You can go like, okay, God is telling me to do this. For all I see, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm going to spend resources, it's risky, whatever, I, but God is telling me to do it. But see, when God told me to do it back there and I did it, it worked out. When God told me back there to do it, I see if I'd have gone this other way, right, that it could have been really, really bad. And the Israelites were in the same place. Though they were a stubborn people, God was teaching them through his faithfulness to his own covenant that he alone was Lord, that they might know him as Lord and God, but they still weren't getting it. And that brings us to our second point. Even though God was, they weren't fully getting it. Now notice it's a continuation of the thought that the covenant stands because God originated it, even though they weren't fully getting it. What is the Old Testament covenant? I mean, let's just, just simplify it. Not the Ten Commandments, but let's get right down to it. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, accordingly, here's how you will behave, right? But I will be your God, and you will be, that's the Old Testament covenant, right? It's essentially the New Testament covenant, except now we know that God paid for the sins of his people, and that's how he's doing that. They only had that in foreshadowing. They, knew, they had sacrifices that would point to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, but they, they, were, they could easily misconstrue the sacrifices and think that that was somehow cleansing them of sin, Right? They were confused about what the sacrifices truly represented. Sometimes, some of them got it, some of them didn't. All right? But the bottom line is, even though they weren't fully getting it, they weren't fully understanding what God was doing, they didn't realize that God was making a way and that everything that they were going through was pointing to the way that God was making. They didn't get that. Yet, God's covenant still stood. It's still like that to this day. Look, look back at 29.4 for a second. 
We read it together just a minute ago. It says, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Now that could be worded completely differently, couldn't it? If it were not in the context in which it's written, it could be worded this way. Yet to this day, you're too stupid to see, too stupid to hear, and too stupid to know. But that's not what it says. It says, The Lord has not given you eyes to see, or ears to hear, or a heart to know. See, God was sustaining them in their ignorance of seeing, their ignorance of hearing, their ignorance of heart, if you will, in order that something might happen. See, this is the pretext of the story. This is the the story, but it's the early story, right? It's the old covenant. God was pointing to a new covenant that needed to be established, that would be established, and sustaining them in the covenant that he had originated in the meantime. If, you go to, if you're following along in your Bibles, you can go real quick to Romans chapter 11. So you're going to go to the New Testament. And I, and I always remember the book of Romans follows after Acts because I always think of Romans using Acts. That's how I always remember that. So you can find that pretty easily. Right? And then chapter 11. In verse 8. Just as it is written. This is chapter 11, verse 8 of the book of Romans. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. You hear it? So God was saying to them, I I have not given you eyes to see. I have not given you ears to hear or a heart to know fully. Right? But David, who was kind of a transition person, he recognized that what was happening was their table. Well, what does the table represent? Sustenance, right? It's where you're provided for. So the provision of God, which was the sustenance. So their clothes not wearing out, their shoes not wearing out, the manna in the desert, God protecting them, God overcoming their enemies, God destroying the Israelites. That's all their sustenance. And so what what David was saying, I see how their table or their sustenance has become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So even though they didn't fully get what God was up to, God was still sustaining his covenant and in the midst of that sustaining them and they were suffering because the sustenance itself was becoming their God. Remember I said, if my, my clothes weren't wearing out, if my shoes weren't wearing out, I'd start to think, well, that's powerful. That's the God I want to be part of, right? But what happens when you say, God, if you'll make my shoes not wear out, if you'll make my clothes not wear out, then I'll come be one of your people. God says, no, it's okay. I don't need that kind of people. I can get that kind of people anywhere, anytime. Right? I don't need that kind of people. I need the kind of people who will come to me the way I say. And what is the work of God? Believe on the one whom I've sent. Right? I need the kind of people who will believe on Jesus and then let me do in their lives whatever it is I choose to do. That's the new covenant. So God was sustaining the old covenant, the covenant with them, because God originated it, even though they didn't fully get it. There's one more verse in the New Testament that speaks on this topic. It's Matthew chapter 13. It's really a short passage. Matthew chapter 13. 
Matthew 13, beginning in 13. So it's 13, 13. So if you're a note taker, that's an easy one to write down. Matthew 13, 13. <clears throat> Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of the people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, notice the contrast, he's talking to people who have trusted Christ, right? Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. You get this? Christians, follower of Jesus, do you understand? That covenant was being sustained for them, not because of their righteousness, but because of imputed righteousness that would come because of Christ, but that covenant was being sustained because God originated it. And then they weren't hearing it, they weren't seeing it, and they weren't having a heart because God was holding them in check. But that thing that God did in sustaining them, he wants to do that in you as well, but not only to sustain you, but also to open your eyes, to open your ears so you can hear, to give you a heart to follow him. A thing has changed. Jesus said, but now you hear you know, understand, as you live today, at whatever age you are in 2023, that over the last six, 8,000 years, there have been people who yearned to have what you literally have right now in this second. That God's Holy Spirit is helping you to understand his word. That has a preacher that would talk to you about what this says. In his church, where people can have united relationships to stand in unity to serve God, to reach out, to love one another, and to love the community. They, they yearned for that. And they couldn't get it. And it's given to us as grace, a gift we do not deserve. The covenant stands because God originated, even though they didn't fully get it. And they didn't fully get it because a time would come at which God would send his son to be the ultimate sacrifice. And then when his son left this earth to send his Holy Spirit to remain with his people, and it is by the Holy Spirit of God that we get it. The last point in there is this. Even so, even though they weren't getting it, God was sustaining his covenant. God was sustaining his, sustaining his covenant people. And God was sustaining the provision. Even though they weren't getting it, he was doing all of those things. Now we see as David saw that David saw that became a trap for them, but they got stuck there. God was sustaining his covenant. Here it is. <laughs> Thousands of years later, still available for us to read. God was sustaining his covenant people. In back in Deuteronomy 8, this was made very clear. If you just want to go back to the book of Deuteronomy and flip back to the 8th chapter real quick. Two verses. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 3, it says this. Deuteronomy 8, 3. And he humbled you and let you be hungry, and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That verse might sound a little bit, you know, might ring true to you a little bit, right? Matthew 4, 
Jesus said that to Satan or the devil when the devil was tempting him. God, through Moses, said to the Israelites, And he humbled you, and he let you be hungry, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. See, God knew that their sustenance would become a stumbling block for them, that it would become a trap. The things that we get that are good, they're very dangerous. They will stick to you. They will drag you down, right? Like the rich man with his pockets full of gold that dives off the boat but can't swim because he's too heavy, but won't dump the gold because it's too valuable and drowns. And that's what people become like. But that's not what Christians are supposed to be. As God's covenant people now, we are supposed to be able to see. We're supposed to be able to hear. Our hearts are supposed to be able to understand that God alone is Lord. Nothing else is good compared to God. A little further in that same chapter, verse 6, he says this, Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. See, they didn't have to get it. They just had to do it. You don't have to understand everything that God wants for your life. You just have to do whatever it is that God has told you to do. That's it. This is the great blessing of it. He is a wise God. He knows the future. He is a sovereign God. He controls the details. He is a powerful God. He defeats the enemies. He's an overcomer God. And if you want to latch yourself onto something of this world, then don't be surprised when the Holy Spirit brings to mind the verse that says to you, a friend of this world is an enemy to God. There are lots of good things. You can, you can look at anything that's in your life right now with the exception of faith and your relationships, right? And you can say, I wouldn't want to lose that, ever. No matter how good it is, I wouldn't want to lose it. But if you lost it, God could replace it with something better. People lost their businesses, started new businesses. People lost their family, God gave them a new family. People lost their jobs, God gave them a new job. People lost their money, God gave them new money. And it just goes, God is the provider God. And just because God is sustaining the covenant people where he is at now, doesn't mean that you can just keep right on doing what you're doing. You look at them, I got enough money, I'm pretty well taken care of, I clothes are, you know, I got I buy new clothes whenever I want, I got a house, I got a roof over my head, rain doesn't fall on my head if I don't want it to, my car gets me from point A to point B. So now I can basically do whatever I want to do as long as it's not overtly sin. No, that's that's not true. The sustenance is becoming a stumbling block for you. Right? Have you ever looked at somebody who was going through a trial and said, man, I'm glad I'm not going through that trial. Maybe that's happening to them because they're doing something wrong. The sustenance of God is becoming a stumbling block to you. God is taking care of you right where you're at, but he's not comfortable with you staying right where you're at because he's taking you where he's taking you. The best worship you can muster right now, having seen God do amazing things, having seen God conquer your enemies, having seen God sustain you through dark, dark times, Trusting Him more now than you ever have in your life. The best worship you can do right now will not be good enough for heaven. You say, well, I'll give up all my money. I'll give up all my strength, all my health, all my... I'll submit it all on the altar. I will literally give my everything before God. Listen to me. Your everything that you can put on the altar right now, the everything you can muster is not good enough for heaven. This is why... The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us because his righteousness is good enough for heaven. It's why we are called to continue to grow in Christ and not let the fact that God sustains his covenant, God sustains his covenant people, and God sustains his provision interfere with our advancing forward.
forward on the path of holiness and walking with the Lord. you got to get out of bed tomorrow morning and say, not only what can I do for Jesus today, but what can I do for Jesus today that I didn't do for Jesus yesterday? And if your schedule starts to get full, if you got things you got to do, jobs you got to carry out, bills you got to pay, then you got to start asking yourself, in light of these new restrictions that the world is placing on me, what can I do for Jesus today that I couldn't do for Jesus yesterday? And it is in that attitude, in your heart, in your desire to follow God and not be trapped in the provision of God, that we find what God is actually looking for. A people with a heart to know God as Lord for eternity. That brings us to our conclusion. I'll recap the points. The first thing was the covenant stands because God originated it, not because they were good people or any other reason. But God sustains the covenant because he originated the covenant. And he did that even though they didn't fully get it. They didn't understand that the sustenance that he was providing was for a time to get them through to the new covenant. And even so, God sustained the covenant, the covenant people, and his own provision for them, which they then got wrapped up in, as we understand. I submit to you, and I'll probably get in trouble for this later, because this is out there in the world It'll be on podcast and Facebook, and I, I sometimes get heckled a little bit. But I submit to you that this is the very same problem that the Jewish nation is walking in today. Believing that they are being sustained because they are the people of God. Now, let's not kid ourselves. And many times, the Jewish nation is extremely <coughs> prosperous. They have access to a lot of money. They do a lot of good in the world. But that sustenance was not put there as a trap. For them, it was put there to sustain them until the point in time at which the new covenant could be revealed. And that brings us to the conclusion. And the conclusion is in three parts and two sets of verses. It is this number one, God can keep his promises. That God that defeated Og and that God that defeated all the people of the promised land, that God that rained down stones, the God that slung the stars in the sky, put up the moon and the sun, he can keep his promises. There is nothing you can do. Not be wicked, not be a sinner, not be the worst of the worst, not fail in anything that he's ever given you to do. You could stand up. And if, if, I say, if God said to me right now to walk to that door, every person in this room could whip out every chair, weapon, fire extinguisher, mic stand, whatever, and try to stop me. And if God said for me to go out that door, you couldn't stop me, no matter how hard you tried. Because God is able to keep his promises. He will take you through from where you are to where he's taking you if you allow it. And literally nothing can stop him from doing what he wants to do. Not Satan, who is strong as an accuser. Satan will say to you, see, God can't do it. And you have to know better. Satan will say to you, well, he or she is bad. And you have to know better. Right? We're not given to be accusers. We're not like him. We don't listen to him. We listen to the promises of God and follow the commands of God and God is able to do it and he is able to make it happen and nothing can stop him. I have raised a number of children now and have some grandchildren and, uh, and I have one nine-year-old still, Ariana, and uh, we go and we, we walk into Menards and as soon as we get out of the car, start walking into Menards, she slips her hand into my hand, and I, and I hold her hand. She's nine. She doesn't have to do that. She's smart. She knows how to avoid cars and stuff like that. But when she was younger, she was like two or three, I said, when we're walking in the parking lot, I'm always going to hold your hand, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm going to hold your hand because I'm taller, 
I'm bigger, cars can more easily see me. I can see a car coming. I have experience. You're not my first kid. I've got this under control. I will keep you safe. You slip your hand in my hand and I will keep you from getting hit by a car. I said more than that though, more importantly than that, while that's very true and I want that to be true and I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. But on top of that, I'm actually seen better when you're holding my hand. So as I'm walking across the parking lot and you slip your hand in mine, so I'm, I'm now 30% bigger than I was before, right? Because see me, and then here's this little girl next to me, right? So I'm wider. I have more linear footage. fact is you're cuter. You've got long hair. People might pay close attention to you, right? So I am less likely to get hit by a car if I'm holding your hand. So let's just hold hands, walk in the parking lot, and we'll both benefit by it. Listen to me. If you will slip your hand in God's hand, nothing will stop him from keeping his promises for you. But more than that, People will be directed to look to God for the same kind of sustenance that you're getting from God because God is presented better when you're walking with your hand in his hand. And people will go, oh, I get that. Right? Now I go sometimes. I, take, uh, I took uh, Zoe and Ariana to the grocery store the one day. Zoe doesn't go to the grocery store all that much, and she was pretty excited. And so I go to walk it, and I go walk in the parking lot, and I've got my hands down like this, and Ariana slipped her hand in my hand. And Zoe saw Ariana slip her hand in my hand, and she went around the other side, and she slipped her hand in my hand, and I never said a word to her. Do you trust God to keep his commands, to keep his promises? If you do, then slip your hand in the hand of God and walk with him wherever, go through whatever, give up, it, give it all up. Give everything up that's holding you back in any way and just say, okay, God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to be? And then just do and say and be that and don't worry about it. God's got it all under control. We're so tied up in regret or dreams that we don't understand the fact that maybe God doesn't want that for us. You know what God wants for you? Heaven for eternity. And frankly, He doesn't care about your house or your hobbies or your job compared to heaven for eternity. He doesn't care about your relationships or your finances or your health compared to eternity. God will strike your health and put you on your deathbed if that's what it takes to get you to heaven. God will burn your house to the ground if that's what it takes to get you to heaven. God will ruin your marriage and your children and you'll be like, I don't understand! Why is this happening to me? If that's what it takes to get you to heaven. God is able to keep his promises. And he says, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you then taken all that you have and put it under his care? Because he's able to keep his promises. Notice also that God can keep you. God can keep you. If you trust in him, he can keep you to the day in which the judgment will occur and you'll either go in or you won't go in. You know, I get it. <laughs> We are talking this morning about voices. There's a lot of voices. Would you, you hear my voice right now? I don't have to yell at you. I want you to hear the most important thing. And that is if you will trust God and you will put your all into God and give Him everything, He is able to keep unto that day that which you have entrusted to Him. And hear me now. And no one else is. Not you, not your spouse, not the devil, not angels. Not your teachers, not your preacher, not your church, not a collection of people, not an army of people, not a nation of people. No one else is. If you invest anything that you are in anyone or anything other than God, whatever you invest, you're basically probably going to lose it. Because people are temporal. Situations change. Tragedy strikes. 
And God can keep his promises and God can keep you. And whatever you put in him, he is able to keep it unto that day. But notice also, he is able to keep the wicked under punishment for that day. Second Peter chapter 2, now this is a little bit trickier to find. It's in the back of the New Testament. It's one of the small books, almost way to the end. So if you go way to the right, you'll find Revelation. Go back a little bit, you'll find a few Johns. And then go a little bit further to the left, and you'll find Second Peter. And it's not very long at all. In my Bible, it's two and a half pages. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9, says this. I'll start reading. I'll give it a run-up. Although it's one of those really long sentences. Starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pit of dark, pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but reserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how. So you're sustained and you think that makes it okay for you to do some of the things that you're doing or to not do some of the things that you're not doing then that sustenance has become a stumbling block for you. That is not how it works. God alone is God, and He can keep His promises, and He can keep you, and He is able to keep the wicked under punishment. Remember, they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, and their clothes didn't wear out, and their shoes didn't wear out. And you know why they were wandering in the desert for 40 years? Because they were disobedient to God, and their clothes didn't wear out, and their shoes didn't wear out even though they were disobedient to God. You can be doing perfectly fine right where you're at, but you're not where God wants you to be, and you've got a real problem. Flip to Psalm 37, and we're almost done. Psalms. If you hold your Bible together and then just open it smack down the middle, you'll find yourself in Psalms, or possibly Proverbs, if you miss the middle a little bit. Psalm 37. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's kind of long, but I want to read a few key excerpts out of it that speak to this topic. Psalm 37, beginning in verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. I mean, you know, sometimes people do wrong and they get ahead, you know what I'm saying, or seem to in the moment. Do not be envious, be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Faithfulness is when you are found doing that which you're supposed to be doing. And when you're cultivating faithfulness, you're trying to find that in yourself and in other people. So you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're helping others do what they're supposed to be doing. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. To delight yourself in God is to want what God wants. And if you want what God wants, what do we say? He can do it. He cannot be held back. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him 
who prospers in his way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Skip to verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. That means made firm. And he delights in his way. That means God delights in the way of an established man. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Love that. Love it. I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. And his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his land or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a violent wicked man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away. And lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have a posterity. That means something that lasts. But transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And now flip to the last verses of the day, back to the book of Romans, going back to the New Testament. So find the Gospels and Acts and go to the right to Romans, Romans 17. Last verses of the day. Oops, I just went past it. Romans 17. Oh. I hate it when that happens. It's not Romans 17. I don't think. Hold on. Okay, here we go. It is 1617. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speeches, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent is when what is evil. Here's the problem that we have in the day. We're teaching our children to understand evil, and that's unnecessary. We should be innocent of evil. It says, and innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God wants to sustain us. In fact, he will sustain you even if you are disobedient. 
but he'll sustain you for justice that ultimately you will face what's justice he is able to hold the wicked for the moment of judgment God wants to sustain you and his sustenance was meant to point to a time at which our eyes are open our ears can hear and our hearts can know that he alone is God that egg that we dropped off the roof if it was your life what kind of protections would you want God alone can sustain you God alone can give you abundant life I ask you cry out to God the Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved be found faithful and do what it is that God would have you to do even though it seems contrary to what the world wants or what it needs or what you think you need be found faithful and do what God would have you to do even when it seems contrary do not let the sustenance of God become a stumbling block to you Rather, look to the Lord for what he wants you to do because he alone can sustain you and he will sustain you even in your disobedience. So don't make the mistake of thinking that you're doing okay when in reality you're insulting the God of heaven. Rather, ask God, what shall I do? Who shall I be? And then let him tell you. And then do that and be that. And he will sustain you. And you will be still around, in heaven perhaps, but still around, to see the wicked fall away. In the meantime, it may look like the richest men on the face of the planet are wretched of soul. It may look like people at your job or your school or on the streets are wretched of soul and doing okay. But don't be fooled. If they are sustained and they are wicked, God is holding them for the day of judgment. We're going to have the praise team to come forward at this time and lead us in our final hymn. This is us asking ourselves, okay, God, I hear what you say. I see what it means. Now what am I supposed to do about it? And you listen to God, whatever he's telling you to do about it, and you do that. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. So you remember sitting there like, I know I'm a Christian. But I know I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But everybody else thinks I'm okay. Because they look at me and they see I'm doing okay. Don't let sustenance become a stumbling block. Instead say, okay, with all that I have and all that I am, I will follow the God of the universe. And everything you entrust to him, you will be able to keep unto that day. Sing with me. Stand with me. Sing, and if the Lord is asking you to respond, then you come and respond to whatever's on your heart today. If you're watching online or listening on the podcast, decide today that God alone is God and He can keep you. And you're going to put everything that you are and everything that you have into His care. Will you be a person that says, I will cultivate faithfulness? So I will be found faithful. Will you, be, will you be a person that says, I will slip my hand in the hands of the Father. And not only will I be protected and you'll keep me safe and you'll carry me through, but on top of that, I will help everyone else see that this is how you get that done. This is how you're okay. You slip your hand in the hand of the Father. Walk with God. 
in dangerous places. Walk with God in dark nights. Walk with God when you feel sustained, when you think you're okay, and when you think you aren't. You walk with God. No matter what, walk with God all the way. Speaking to you, you respond. 